You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. In connection with our sermon this afternoon, I would invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We'll begin at verse 9 and we'll read through to chapter 4 verse 8. It's quite possible that these verses and these words are very familiar to you. Well, they should be. They're much loved. They speak about our righteousness before God, are the basis of why we can stand before God and be confident of everlasting life. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We already made, we already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away, they have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now... A righteousness apart, a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference for they have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice, because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. What shall we What shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, His faith is credited as righteousness. 
David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Our text this afternoon is the Word of God as it's summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 23 of the Heidelberg Catechism. You'll see just above there that we begin a new section in the Catechism, a section entitled Our Justification. But what does it help you now that you believe all this? In Christ, I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, I've never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? Not that I'm acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, for only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can make this right, I can receive this righteousness and make it my own by faith only. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I think it was Haddon Robinson, uh, a well-known, at least among preachers, a well-known teacher and, and preacher who wrote and taught, especially about preaching, I think it was him, it might have been someone else, who would give this advice to his students when he was talking about preaching, delivering sermons. He would say something like, you know that aisle that you walk down every single time after you've just preached a sermon? I want you to imagine me sitting at the last seat of that aisle, the last seat that you pass before you go out of the church. And every single Sunday, after you preach and you walk down that aisle, I'm going to be sitting there at the back with my arms folded and a big scowl on my face. And I'm going to look at you and I'm going to say, So what? So what? What does it matter? Why does what you just told me for the last half an hour make any difference in my life? How's it going to help me when I go back to my boring job on Monday? How's it going to help me when my kids are acting up again, as they have been for years? How is it going to help me when I have to care for my mother who is being treated for cancer? How's it going to help me when I'm struggling against my addiction to pornography? So what? It's a profound question. It's a question on one hand that could be full of hope and expectation, but on the other hand, it could be full of disappointment and failed expectations. It's a question 
that strikes right at the core of what the gospel is all about. So what? This is precisely the question that the questioner of the catechism puts before us this afternoon. We've just spent some 15 Lord's Days talking about the contents of the Apostles' Creed, the contents of our faith, what we believe in, what we hold dear, what we trust in. But now the Catechism invites us to go one step further and deeper, and it asks that potentially troubling question, so what? How does it help you now that you believe all this? It may be a potentially troubling question, especially to the preacher coming off of the pulpit, leaving the sanctuary. But the catechism draws on the richness of God's Word and proves to be unflappable, even in the face of such profound question, so what? So what, you ask? Only this. In Christ, I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. That's what the Catechism teaches us to say. The Apostles' Creed means on the ground for me. Nothing less than that I am united to the Son of God, the Lord of heaven and earth, the King, the Savior from heaven. That I am accounted righteous before God, not guilty, not condemned, not even potentially okay down the road. Righteous. And that I'm no longer a slave, but a son and an heir to everlasting life. And all the blessedness that comes with that. And so that's our theme this afternoon. It's not a troubling so what. It's a glorious so what. Because it gets us to acknowledge that I am declared righteous before God in Christ. And we'll see... Underneath this, the humbling although, there is an although there. That's our sinfulness. And then we'll look at the beautiful yet of God's grace before we come to the necessary only, and that's faith. So first then, the humbling although. So we've come to the crux of the matter, what John Calvin describes as the main hinge upon which our salvation turns. No hinge, salvation doesn't happen. Justification is important. Justification by faith alone. As the Catechism summarizes that, in Christ I'm righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. But how does this happen? How does someone become righteous, innocent, acceptable before God? Well, by faith in Jesus Christ. By faith, I trust in Christ and embrace the certainty that I am forgiven and declared righteous in God's sight. I'm reconciled, restored, and given the right to stand before the judgment seat of God. Not based on my righteousness, but based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. Yet no sooner do we confess our incredible status before God, righteous, and its exclusive grounds, Christ, than we're reminded of another reality, 
with that humbling although. You see it there in the answer, answer 60. Although. I considered calling this the sad but true although. Because that's what it is. It's saddening. And it's true. Part of believing that you're justified, that you're declared righteous, involves acknowledging the flip side of that coin. That is, that you're unrighteous and guilty. That's a sad reality. It's sad because it's not the way it was supposed to be. Even though it's true that I, we've all sinned against God's commandments, never kept any of them, and are still inclined to all evil, that's not what God created us for. God created man in the beginning, you might remember, good. In His image and likeness, full of righteousness, peace, and joy. Adam and Eve, God's first created humans, enjoyed communion with God. But they fell. They enjoyed righteousness, peace, and joy, but they sinned. They rebelled. They grasped for a glory that was not theirs. They sought a knowledge that they could not obtain. And when they fell, they corrupted themselves and they corrupted the entire humanity of which they are the parents. And so that becomes the reality in which we find ourselves today. The reality of humanity today. Corrupt, rebellious, lawless. It's true that there is a a thin facade of civility and, and charity, but it's thin. Even if you just look at things with your eyes without considering God's Word, you're reminded of this from time to time. This morning we heard about a wall somewhere in Langley that has all sorts of things written on it against the government and against the police and the rulers of our land. This is a nice area. Seems like it's full of nice people, but you don't have to dig very far to find a bridge under which all sorts of terrible things are written. You don't need to go far to find the results of sinfulness and devastation and corruption, even in our neighborhoods. And when we examine ourselves in light of God's law, His measure of how to walk and how how to be righteous before Him, then we really realize how far short we fall. God says, have no other gods before me. Our world is full of other so-called gods. God says, keep the Sabbath holy. And yet we fail even in our rest, even when we're not doing anything to keep it holy. All our works are tainted with sin. Honor your father and your mother. Not simply obey, but honor, respect, esteem. Do not commit adultery. And our Lord Jesus teaches us that even to look lustfully is adultery. And every man is struck down. Do not bear false witness, but uphold the integrity of your neighbor always. Do not covet. Don't want things that other people have. And we realize the profound truth of what Paul says in Romans 3 verse 10, no one is righteous. 
Not even one. There is no one who does good. That's the reality. And that's a sad reality. And it's often a very difficult reality. The catechism says, although my conscience accuses me, not only God's objective standard, but my own conscience awakened and restored by the Holy Spirit speaks to my own guilt. I can't stand up for myself. My conscience accuses me. It's a terrible feeling, isn't it? When your conscience is awakened and all of a sudden you you begin to realize something, not even the full depths, but something of the depths of your depravity. It's saddening. Who hasn't wept over their sins? Over that sense of shame? Over that sense of guilt that you incur before the throne of God when you consider that reality at work in your own heart? That it's sinful. In your sins, you are guilty. It's a sad reality, brothers and sisters. But it's not a depressing reality. It's not a devastating reality. The catechism didn't ask us, why are you struck down before the throne of the judge and eternally condemned? No, the catechism did not ask us that. It asked us, how are you righteous before God? But yet the first part of answering this is that humbling although. First, we need to understand that on my own, I'm not righteous. And this means several things for us in our lives, it means that we can't ignore our sins. I know for a fact that some people bristle at the, at the idea of being reminded about their sins. That they have sinned, that they do sin, and that they will continue to sin. Christ has died for me, they say, and that's the end of it. I don't want to hear the other side of the story. But the Catechism reminds us of the other side of the story. The Apostle Paul reminds us. John reminds us. Peter reminds us. God's Word reminds us of the other side of our story, of the story that is not to ignore our sinfulness or pride or rebellion. To, to ignore them, there's good reason not to ignore them. To ignore them is to risk boasting in ourselves. To ignore them is to ignore reality. Because we are Sinful. But to acknowledge them to ourselves, to others, as we confess our sins, and before God's throne, is to remain humbled and awed by the extent of God's justifying grace. And so closely connected with that, we confess that I'm, when we confess that I'm righteous before God, we are also saying, I'm willing to recognize and admit and confess that I am guilty before God. Maybe you've heard it said to you, I've heard it said to me, that people like you and me, people that go to church, well, we just think we're better than everyone else. I really hope that's not true. We should be the people who know how bad we really are. We know that we're guilty. We know that we fall short. We know that we can't make it on our own. When we acknowledge this reality, then it removes any pretension or conceit that lingers in our hearts. That sad but true although 
the although of sinfulness, becomes the humbling although as our basis for pride and boasting is stripped away. And we embrace the grace of God. That's what we come to, secondly, in the beautiful yet. The humbling although is the, the testimony of our conscience that I've broken God's law. It's not something that just serves as an introduction to the good news, something we've got to get over just to get there. It's part of the good news. It's the flip side of the good news coin. Now we get to flip that coin over and gaze on the beauty of the grace of God. This beautiful yet is really just the beautiful, the beauty of God's grace. And the catechism captures it very well, I think, and very briefly. Those first two words there are striking, comforting, and strengthening. Yet, God. I in my sinfulness, I can't keep God's law, my conscience accuses me. Yet, God captures the flavor of Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yet God immediately excludes my works, my righteousness, my boasts. And this is wonderful. Because I know that I'm a lawbreaker. Yet God. Who? God. Which God? The God of grace love and compassion, the God who reveals Himself as the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and mercy, who will not always accuse, nor harbor His anger forever, who does not treat us as our sins deserve, nor repay us according to our transgressions, whose love is so great, and who has removed our transgressions from us? Who? That God. Yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace. Just a quick note on that word mere. When we use mere these days, we think of how, how lowly and limited something, and I'm a mere man, means I can do nothing more than what a man can do. But here, it doesn't mean lowly, weak. It means pure. Pure. Ivory soap claims to be 99 and 44 one hundredths pure. It's almost mere soap. Well, God's grace and justification is 100% pure. It's mere grace. And so out of pure grace, He imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. That sums up justification in a nutshell. He imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. But as it is with nutshells, sometimes it's hard to look at what's inside without breaking it open a little and examining the contents. And so let's take a look at that nut. The Catechism mentions three, what do you want to call them, aspects, characteristics of Christ's work, accomplishments of Christ, that are imputed to me to you through faith. Imputed. What does imputation mean? Well, it simply means that we are declared righteous or that righteousness is credited to us. 
The distinction there is between something that's transferred or, or transfused, worked into us. The Roman Catholic doctrine was that grace was, was infused in us. It, it worked in our hearts. And so God gave us grace that worked in our hearts, and then we had to produce good works in order to be justified. So it was a matter of grace and works. But that's not the biblical teaching on justification, and that's what the reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and the rest, discovered. And it's captured in that word impute. Impute means credit or declare. As in Romans 4, verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Or in verses 6 and 7, David speaks of the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. You see, this word imputation or crediting or or declaring, it implies substitution. Substitution. It implies that Jesus Christ did these things on our behalf. This is not our righteousness. That's why it's imputed to us. Imagine a courtroom. You're there before the judge, and the judge is the Almighty God. And you're fully guilty in His sight. Yet on your behalf, you have a mediator, an advocate, a lawyer, if you will. Jesus Christ, who argues that He has taken upon Himself your guilt and that His own righteousness should be applied to you. And so the judge has two people standing before Him. And He has two names on His ledger in front of Him. Your name and the name of His Son, His eternal Son, Jesus Christ. He sees you guilty under the law, And he sees his son, perfectly innocent, righteous, and holy, and obedient, even to the point of death. He sees all that he has done, that Jesus Christ has done, in bearing your guilt. And so he listens to the testimony of that righteous mediator, and he looks at you, and he puts his pen to the paper. And then beside your name, where it should be written, guilty, He writes out the words in indelible ink, righteous. And then beside the name of his own beloved son, he writes out guilty and all the punishments that come along with that. The guilt of your sin is imputed to Jesus Christ. And his righteousness is imputed to you. You you now stand before the judge with all the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of that man who testified for you, the man from heaven, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That's imputation. And the contents, what is given to you, is given in those words, satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness. Now, these words aren't meant to really nicely delineate everything that Jesus Christ has done for you. They sort of overlap each other in different ways, but they they do help to get the breadth of what Christ has done, the breadth of what is imputed to us. Satisfaction points to the suffering and death of Christ. The wages of sin, Paul taught us, is death. 
And death is really the finality of the punishment that we deserve. Sin demands satisfaction. The law demands satisfaction. Just like if you break the law in Canada, you need to be punished by that law. So the sinner must be punished according to God's law. Well, this is the punishment that Jesus Christ took on Himself when He became a man during all His suffering in His life and ultimately and finally on the cross where He suffered the torment of God for three long and dark hours. He did that on our behalf. His satisfaction becomes ours. Righteousness cannot really be divided from satisfaction. In the course of His life, the Lord Jesus Christ did not sin. He was obedient to God in everything, to the negative demands of the law in bearing our punishment, and to the positive demands of the law in walking in integrity and truth before God. Precisely where Adam and all humanity fell, that is where Jesus Christ did not. He was righteous. He was obedient. And He was acceptable to God. His righteousness is ours by faith. Holiness, that third word, it speaks to the whole tenor of Christ's life. Our works are unacceptable to God for our justification. Why? Because they're pitiful. Because they are unholy. They come up from an unholy well within us, our corruption. But all that Christ did, everything that He did, draws from the well of His perfect humanity. And so it's all holy. It's all pleasing and acceptable to God. A pleasing aroma. In His perfect holiness, Jesus Christ was holy for us. And so now you're going to ask me, with your arms folded, and a scowl on your face, so what? So what? What does it mean that I have the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ? Well, the Catechism explains two parts what form the core of justification. First, it's as if I had never had nor committed any sin. So what? So what? The guilt of sin is gone, washed away, removed. That burning and seared conscience is quieted. The regrets, the mistakes, the abuses, failures, the rebellions, the waywardness, the pride, the selfishness, in short, the sin with all of its guilt and shame and eternal consequences, is gone. It's forgiven. What else does it mean? It's as if I had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. In order to live eternally, in order for to live a blessed life with God, to inherit all the promises of God, to live in full joy and peace that with God, it requires that we live perfectly, that we are righteous. But we can't do it. But Christ did. 
And so now we can enjoy the good things of God, both now and eternally. Is that enough to wipe the scowl off your face? What a tremendous blessing. How do we get them? What do we do? We don't do anything. Don't move. Don't do anything. Don't get busy. Don't map out a self-help plan to make this a reality in your life. Don't hire a life coach to give you the encouragement that you need. Do nothing but believe. Trust. Trust that all Jesus Christ has done, His satisfaction, His righteousness, His holiness, He has done for you. What's the necessary only? Well, we say it with with answer 61 in the catechism. Why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? Not that I'm acceptable on account of the worthiness of my faith. Even my faith is not worthy. But it is simply that I believe that Christ has accomplished salvation for me. I trust in Him. I let go of every and any pretension and ambition toward pleasing God and grasp hold of the fact, the testimony, the reality that Jesus Christ is my only Savior. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.